warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Dr. James Ring, a guy who will be known to many of the listeners to this show from lots of different types of work he's been doing in Limerick over the past number of years. James is a graduate of LIT from where he received his PhD. Of course, it's now TUS. Um, He has an MBA from the Kemi Business School in UL. He's also a graduate of UL where he's got his degree. He's been head of the Limerick Civic Trust. He's been head of Limerick Chamber and he's now currently the CEO of Ingenium and we'll talk to him a little bit about what that training company does because it's a very exciting business that's located now in the heart of O'Connell Street. Dr. James Ring, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks Nigel, great to be here. James, you fascinate me because you're youth and growing up, you wouldn't be sort of the middle class boy that went on and got sent to college and, and you know, was told, go and follow this direction and become a big academic. You, you, tell me about your growing up in Limerick City. That's quite simple, really. I, I spent all my life um, on at Lunkard Street, really, growing up in the King's Island, which I loved. You know, I, I just, it's just a great community, and I've been lucky to be part of it for so long. And then when I grew up, I suppose, like most people, I left for a while, went to Dublin, went to Cork, and then came back to Limerick. And But eventually, I, I moved back, actually, and bought my grandparents' house in Lunkard Street when they died. Um, so I was probably around 30 then, 29, 30, and bought that. And lived there, actually, until only a couple of years ago before I moved away. So I literally, I suppose you could say nearly all of my life has been spent living on the King's Island. Tell me what growing up on King's Island was like. Was there a perception that it was, you know, a sort of a working class part of the city? Or I mean, it has an amazing community, but what was it like for a young guy growing up there? I suppose, I, well, I loved it. I, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a great childhood. Like, in, you know, I was lucky that, um, firstly, I suppose my parents um, looked after us the right way and... We were lucky that we always had income in the house because dad always worked. And then when we got a bit older, man went back to work. I was lucky that I had great friends that I have since my childhood and we're still friends. We're actually going away at the weekend for a weekend. So, we, you know, even though life has taken us on different paths, we still meet up. You know, I, and I, do you know what, Nigel? I still remember the, the time I realised that I wasn't from the posh part of town because, you know, you don't know these things when you're a kid. And when one of the lads ended up going out with a girl for a while from the North Circle Road and we went over there one night <laughs> and uh, we saw a very different world to the one we were living in. And that's, I suppose, when I first realised that uh, we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> what about your family? How many brothers and sisters and what kind of work did your dad do? You know, what was the, what was childhood like? Actually, dad, actually, would you believe now, dad retired today. No. After 44 years in Stryker, or some people would remember it as Homedica. So congratulations to my father. And he's, congratulations. Well, he said he's not retired. He's just finished there. He's, he's, yeah. still, he's still not ready to sit, hang up his boots yet. Um, I, have three, I have two brothers, three boys in the family. I'm the eldest and I have two younger brothers. And there was, and obviously mom and dad. And it was a very, I think I'd say that our childhood was, and our upbringing was fairly uh, simple. We didn't go on foreign holidays and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, we, but we, I suppose we never wanted for anything either. We were kind of happy and uh happy in our little bubble and, you know, life was kind of simple for us and I, I enjoyed it. I know your brother Matt and, and music in the family seems to be something that you all have and it's in you. Where did that come from? I don't know. I, I don't. And um, I think it's just, I think from both sides, but predominantly more my, my mom's side, the she inside the family, you know, the, their, their family get-togethers are usually good crack and good singing and, and messing. But I think like it just in, in our family, it just seemed to kind of blossom a bit more. I loved it. Mam's friend was a music te- uh, piano teacher, and she kind of taught me young when I was seven or whatever. And, um, and and maybe just you know yourself, Nigel. Maybe just she ignited a spark that kind of worked. And then my brother Matt is also well, Matt's a very se- serious drummer, and also actually my youngest brother Evan is also a decent drummer as well. So. It's just, but for me, it's just a hobby and, a, and, a, and a, I'd love it if it was oh, my So it career. didn't come from the, the, the dove from above, above. It seems it's just been in you. It's some, yeah. something that, yeah. Um, thinking about your education, I mean, you're Dr. James Ring, you've the, you have an MBA of late and, and, you know, were you always academic or did that come as your, as your path, as your journey just to, to found its way? How, do, how did the academia come about? Well, I certainly didn't aspire to be Dr. This or Dr. That mm. or anything like that when I was a kid. It wasn't about that. And I suppose, I suppose, look, Nigel, the first thing is I was no great shake in school. And I'd be mm. first to say that. It's not that I'm this 
genius. People think that, you know, if they hear you're a doctor this, they think that it automatically equates to high levels of intelligence. And it actually doesn't. Mm. The PhD is about, yes, all right, you can't be a jack dog going in to do a PhD. But what it's really about, I think, is a, is a, is a sign of someone's endurance and resilience to keep going because a mm. PhD is very, very difficult to do in terms of you're on your own for a lot of the time. You have to have the discipline to go into that lab or whatever it is, into the library every day and study and research and do all that. Um, I think for me, it was just when I was in school, I just seemed to like science. I just, you know, yourself, it's just some subjects click with you. I liked biology and I liked um, geography and I did environmental science because it seemed to be a kind of an amalgamation of the two to some degree. Mm. Gave me the science, but gave me the natural world side of it too. Um, loved it, did the doctorate. And I think the doctorate, I, I don't know why I did the doctorate. I, I remember I was working first, my first job. So your PhD was in environmental science? Chemistry, yeah, environmental chemistry. Okay, right. So when I when I did, um, I remember I was working in the lab in the city council's lab testing the water for the city. So that was my job, testing people's drinking water. So, you know, anyone who got a bit of poisoning from the water in the late <laughs> 90s, early 90s, I You're apologize blame, now. Yeah. But um I just got the opportunity, Fergal Barry, who was my PhD supervisor, Fergal, you probably know, who went on mm. to become the, the president of Galway, uh, Mayo IT. He gave me an opportunity and I just took it. I said, why not? Give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? And, uh, but you know what was funny, Nigel, at the end of the PhD, I swore I would never work in a science lab. I knew I didn't want to do that kind of science. So was the PhD actually clarified it for you? Yeah, absolutely. I loved really it. Don't get me wrong. I loved it, but I just knew it wasn't for me. So I got lucky when I finished the PhD, I got a job working in Dublin for IBEC and it was giving me, bringing me into the business side of the pharma industry. And just explain to listeners what IBEC do. IBEC are, a, um, I suppose they're a business representative group. So in, my, in the one I, the sector I was in, it was all the big pharma giants. You know, and as you know, the pharma is a huge industry in Ireland. Nearly half of our GDP comes from pharma. Well, probably a bit less now, but it was, it's massive. So I was in that um, representative group and I was in with the business side of the science world. And that's where I started seeing a different world to, to, to one that I ever experienced before. Never in a million years would I have seen that my life would be spent in a suit and, you know, advising people on this, that and the other. I thought my life was going to be going out around forests, planting trees, telling people where to plant trees. Maybe I wouldn't do the plant, I don't know. But that's what I thought it would be an environmental scientist type of thing. But life brings you down different paths, Nigel, and you experience different things. And that's what happened to me. I saw a different world and I quite enjoyed it. Um, when you were in school, if you were, I asked this to a lot of the people I've been interviewing of late, but when you were in first year or maybe second year, if someone had asked you what you want to be when you finish, were you scientific at that point? Or what was your, what would you really have loved to have done when you were younger? Uh, I, well, I, apparently I, I always said I was going to play for Liverpool. Yeah, it yeah. didn't happen. Um, You're handy in the field, uh, I hear, yeah, though, still. <laughs> but not, not that handy. Um, so I, I, apparently I promised my grandmother that when I was earning 5,000 euros a week with Liverpool, I'd buy her one of the apartments on top of the tax office down in Sarsfield House. She wanted one of those looking across onto the, onto the Gallows Hill. Unfortunately, she died before I realised that dream. Uh, but I, do you know what? They'd be knocking it now anyway. Yeah, so I know, be, so yeah. God love her. Like, um, no, I think, I think for... I didn't really know what I wanted to do. For a while, I think I wanted to be a teacher. But I think that's only because, you know, when you're in school, it's that bubble you live in and all you really know is a teacher, you know, mm -hmm. so... I'm glad I didn't become a teacher. Now, tell me, the, the IBEC stuff, you know, that, that had you in Dublin. How did the Civic Trust role come about? Well, I'd come back to Limerick. I, I left IBEC and I came back to Limerick, firstly to work in UL, actually, as a project manager. We were working with kids from disadvantaged areas. And I actually, I'm going to caveat that with saying I don't like using that word disadvantaged area because I grew up in one and I didn't feel any way disadvantaged in my life. Um, maybe some other people may have, but I didn't. And But we were look, basically looking at helping kids from areas of low socioeconomic levels to get to stay in school longer and get more out of their education. And, I, and, I, and you can imagine because of me coming from where I came from and doing what I did in, in the academic world, that was a big boon for me because the attitude I had was if I can do it, well, it's not special about James, so surely to God I can help other people do it. So I was back actually in Nimerick. And then one night I was just on the couch. And I, do you know what, Nigel, it bothered me. What bothered me in that role was I saw, I saw piranhas trying to feed off a poverty industry. And what I saw was loads of people with, sorry, lots of people working in this world trying to help people from these, these disadvantaged areas, we call it that. Regeneration communities. Well, we, and beyond them. Because mm -hmm. you remember now, like, of you course, know, yeah. there's like the regeneration of St. Mary's Park, but around the corner isn't regeneration. So we're talking about the broader uh, broader landscape here a bit. But what I'm getting at, Nigel, is you had loads of people trying to help these these 
people you know get up the ladder or whatever. But you have an awful lot of people pontificating and an awful lot of people looking really at to protect their job. Their job was more important than helping the people that they were supposed to help. So I had enough of it. Um, it just some people just sick in my stomach a little bit, and I because I thought to myself, you're not, you don't, you say you care, but you don't, and I just had enough of that. And I was sitting there one night, and I saw an ad for the Civic Trust where Dennis Leonard, God rest him, had just mm. died a few months beforehand, and it was the first time they were looking for someone. There was an interim. Um, there was a lady, uh, Monica Spencer, you might know, her, who was holding the ropes for a while, and I saw it, and I, I thought, you know what? I thought it was a natural kind of merging of my what I liked. I had a passion for Limerick because, of course, I'm from there, and I, you know, I can I knew what the Civic Trust did, and I thought the environmental piece and the and my I have a Fits. kind of a history yep. kind. Of, I like the history of Limerick. It just seemed to fit. And I just stuck in a CV, but I didn't never thought I'd get it. I was 28. Like, I mean, come on. If someone said to me, now there's a 28 year old about to take over Civic Trust, you'd be saying, what? what? It seems a bit young. And I know I'm saying that as the person who was that age. And I often think like Gabriel Wallace O'Donnell was the chairperson at the time. And I often wonder, what does she see when I walked in? Because let's be honest, at 28, you're as green as grass in many ways. But they took a gamble on a rookie. And I loved the Civic Trust. Loved it. Mm. And it was it's such a difficult time because you had the recession had kicked in. The Civic Trust was in financial. I well, Yeah, turmoil is a fair enough word to use because it had, you know, donations had, had dried up. And in particular, when it's a non-emotive charity, you know, something like cancer or whatever will still raise money. But when it's buildings or what's perceived to be buildings, that dries up. And they were left with, you know, trying to repay, you know, loans for doing like building the George House, things like that. But what a learning curve it was, because there were some great people in the Civic Trust who taught me a lot. And I think of people like, actually, one person that stands out in my head in the Civic Trust is the current city manager, CEO, Pat Daly. Of the, uh, you know, at the time, Pat wasn't even on the, in the council. But Pat was fantastic in terms of helping fix the Civic Trust. Mark McMahon, who owns the, the buildings of providers. Yeah. Jerry Griffin, Frank Deneen, uh, Jim O'Donnell. There was loads of great people involved in it um, and really passionate and cared. And, and there I am as... 28, 29, trying to negotiate with the banks. But I had these great heads around me who would advise me and guide me. So it was a great time. And I think, do you know what? I look back on the Civic Trust, Nigel, and I say to myself, I think there's two camps in thought as to how I got on there. I think there's some who recognize that I, that I saved the Civic Trust. And I know that might be a very strong statement to make. Dennis Leonard built it. But the turmoil it was in when the recession hit. And also you have to remember Dennis had died and was sick. So there was a time there where I suppose that, that great brain that was running the Civic Trust. His eye was off the ball because he was looking after himself, yeah. You know, well, he had to because he Mm. was sick, so sick. And so without someone steering the ship properly, this can happen. So when I look back at it, I think, do you know what? We wiped away all the debt. We got it back into making a small surplus and we protected all those jobs that were in the Civic Trust. So I'm delighted. But I do know on the other side, some people think, yeah, but you didn't, you didn't restore any building. And I'd say it's him. Now, that's yeah. something because like, I'm, I'm seeing the work of the Civic Trust. I'm living literally around the corner from them. And you see the guys every morning at eight o'clock when I'm walking my dog. And they're there in the high visits and they're off doing. And it's wonderful to see guys who may otherwise be unemployed yeah. feeling that they have something to do. However, there possibly is, is a perception by in some camps that the Civic Trust has become a grass-cutting machine for the local authority. Me, And what I mean by that, I don't mean they just cut grass, they do an amazing stuff, but that the projects they're doing are kind of things that maybe the local authority should be doing, mm-hmm. and they're things like you know, look maybe looking after that bridge that comes from the potato market. Yeah. It's kind of their job to paint it if it runs into disrepair. What are your thoughts on that, that possibly the Civic Trust, and it's not that it is doing this, it's just the perception might be, actually the Civic Trust only go and cut grass. Uh, I would say that if they didn't do it, the council wouldn't do it. That's the thing, you see. So you can you can say the council should be doing this, but the reality is that there's only a certain amount of resource available. Now, there, to be fair, like the, the the Civic Trust isn't actually cutting areas that the council normally cut. Like, you could take the Samware Bank. N- nobody was looking after that. Now, you, you, you could put the other argument of, well, this council should look after it, but then it's very hard to look after every blade of, gla- blade of grass in the city. I think there is a balance. I can see why people would say that. And I know that when I was in the hot seat down there, that was thrown at me too. But at the end of the day, I, would, I, th- I always felt that we should do whatever communities want us to do. And what we used to do back in my time was certainly we would talk to the communities and ask them, What's not happening in your community that you think we might be able to help you with? And Nigel, if someone tells me, well, would you clean up that area, lads? Then we'll do that Mm. if it benefits Mm. the area, if no one else is going to do it. And I will never, I would certainly in my time, I would never have apologized for helping any community. And it didn't matter what socioeconomic background I'm talking about here, Nigel. 
whether it was North Circular Road or the island, it mm. didn't matter. We would help any community that asked for it. And that's the way it should be. If you were to, I mean, and, and again, you're, you're not from, so I'm not going to say that you're going to tell David O'Brien what to do, how to do his job, but I mean, what are the sort of things you would like to see the Civic Trust do now? Or is there, is there things like, you know, as we looked today, for instance, with the handover of King John's Castle, yeah. I, as someone who walks around the island, and I'm sure there's, and there are other parts of the city, you know, there's little public round things that we could really improve. And it was lovely the other day to see, I think, the O'Connell Street planters that were there now that the work is happening were relocated to Nicholas Street. And they have made a really lovely difference. You know, they're sure. there. That stuff should have happened five, six years ago. It's not rocket science. Could we be looking at a civic trust that actually looks at King's Island and the King's Island area and says, right, we could really do a project here that could help the castle under the local authorities' leadership to become a real focal point for tourism in the city? Yeah, of course you can. I mean, look, the civic, sorry, even in my time, the civic trust, we were trying to lobby to try and get Nicholas Street effectively be Limerick's answer to Bunradic Folk Park. It's a no brainer. It's beside City Hall. It's in between the two most iconic buildings in, in the entire city with the cathedral and the castle. It makes no sense to me why we let it go into Rack and Ruin. If I was the, if I was the head of this city, it's the first thing I would do to, to attract a really, a really genuine footfall into the city. Because I, when I was in the Civic Trust, my office used to look out, at, of course, at the castle. And I'd see the buses pull up. People get off the buses, go to the castle, get out of the castle, go back on the bus and leave and go to Bunratty. Limerick didn't benefit from the castle. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it did. It didn't for so long. I hope that with this fresh start now, with this new company taking over, that it's now owned, if you like, and run by Limerick. we got to get this right. And looking at the Nicholas Street thing, because it, it did fascinate me. In fact, the Nicholas Street project was the first thing I ever, that ever got me interested in Limerick. It was about 12 years ago, and a meeting was held in the Strand, in the Absolute Hotel, and it was to do with Nicholas Street. And I remember going, you may have been there, and I remember coming away from it going that, there's all these business owners, sorry, all these property owners or business owners who actually don't have a vision, but they're fighting amongst themselves about what they want to happen. And, and I just thought, that looks like a cacophony of, of a mess. You know, there, there was no togetherness, but yet it really is only, what is it, 600 meters in length? And, yeah. uh, you know, when you see you the... Need to go, you need to go beyond Nicholas Street. No, okay. It's not Nicholas Street. What you need to realise, you know, sorry, I don't mean that in a kind of, no, I, no, a, a, I get kind you. of patronising way. There, there's a royal, I mean, Limerick has a royal mile, like Edinburgh has. It, the street of Nicholas Street, John, Mary Street, John Street, right up to the cathedral, John's Cathedral, is more or less the exact same layout or route as it was back in medieval times. Yep. Limerick has that route going through the old city. Why could, did you look at the state of some of that parts of those streets? Look at John's Gate, Nigel. Mm. A disgrace to see it in, in the condition it's in. John Street itself at nighttime is a disaster shop. Mm. Mary Street, okay, not bad, let's be honest. And I think the Bonds have done a good job and some some lovely houses on Mary Street, lovely gardens, and Nicholas Street is improving. Improving, yeah. And the businesses on Nicholas Street, and I know them well, as you could imagine, they've worked so bloody hard. And I think of people like Mike Tracy, like, like uh, Snowy Inside and Sticks, you know, these guys who were there so long, all their lives, breaking their backs trying to do it. They deserve support. To me, just imagine a vision of Nicholas Street where some of the houses start becoming attached. Some of the houses have lovely, some of the premises have lovely quaint shops that suit. We, Nigel, my mum and dad were telling me they were out in Bunratty and Saturday was packed. And I'm saying to myself, why do we all drive out to Bunratty? It's beautiful, mm. but why can't we create that in the city? We can. And remember, we are now going to be entering a phase where Clare are going to be in competition with Limerick. Mm with our one little project in the castle. Now, hopefully we'll have other things that'll tie together under that umbrella, umbrella of Discover Limerick that has yeah. been launched today. But it's going to be an interesting process to watch. And I, I agree with you. And it was interesting. Some guy in Dublin, a big architect, shared recently an image of, and, and if you go into the castle experience, you'll see it. The original Nicholas Street had these beautiful um, Dutch, uh, Dutch gable frontages um, the whole way along them. And there's one recreated on Castle Lane that from the early project with Shannon right. Development. But he had kind of suggested that if you were to find some way of recreating those as false facades and, and do it, it's pastiche, but it could actually start that process. Yeah. But you have to find something to go into them yeah, that will I, be of interest. And I'm probably being a bit quaint by saying put thatch, mm. but you know, I'm trying to put that, that an older feel to the street. It deserves it. 
when you, when you look to put cobbles back on that street and make it feel like, you know, something that you step back. And we'll get time. back to that because that requires a little bit of moving of traffic as well, um, which hmm. is just another big argument to be had in the city. So Civic Trust happens. You did a wonderful job. You brought it back from a, a time when it wasn't in the best of shape financially. Um, and then the Chamber of Commerce came along. Um, and obviously that was a totally different role from really away from the environmental stuff, yeah. but probably coming back to the IBEC days, um, if I'm right. And you were seen as a guy who came in and fundamentally changed probably the organization and how the organization functioned. Um, tell me about your chamber days and what, what really rocked your boat about that time. <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I think the chamber was my favorite job today. It's like, it was just fabulous. And what I, what I found with the chamber was, um, it was a bit of a sleeping giant. I came in and I just found this organization that had lost its energy bit lethargic, you know, not really beating the drum in the way it should beat the drum. And I guess I felt from the start, I realized I needed to give it back its voice uh, and try not to be one a negative voice, but to try and be a constructive voice. And that's sometimes difficult because frustration can push you down the negative path. But I just think the first thing I had to do um, was to try and just shake it back into life. Unfortunately, as you know, Nigel, I had to move some people on and bring in different skill sets that I thought were required. But it fundamentally was based around one, there was one philosophy and this, it was simply, I segregated the membership base. I looked at the city center, the SMEs and the corporates. Now I know that's a bit of a crude way of splitting them up, but the reality was the city center want to see micro policy as in the city center, what's happening in the city center. We want to see more of X, more footfall, less, you know, whether it's less cars, better, you know, maybe more park and ride, make it easier for customers to come in now the city center, better experiences, all that type of stuff, that day-to-day -day stuff that you'll be arguing with the council for a lobbying councillor. The SMEs wanted networking, business-to-business -business networking, because that's how it works. So you had to set up a function for that. And then the corporates wanted macro policy. And I think that's where we had lost our way a good bit because the corporates didn't really engage. And this, is the, this was the trick, Nigel. I mean, it was quite simple, actually. James Ring, as the CEO of the, of the chamber, has no power. Let's be under no illusions. And I was humble enough to spot this from the very start. If I pick up a phone and speak, I want to speak to Michael Noonan, Michael Noonan can go, would you get away, James Ring? Don't be annoying me. Michael was the, obviously in power at the time. However, if I could engage the corporates, and all of a sudden the corporates are telling me to ring Michael Noonan, now Michael has to answer the phone because now I'm representing the biggest businesses in the city. And if they speak, the government listen, rightly or wrongly, they do listen. So what I had to do was engage the corporates to give me that credibility and power to, on their behalf to open the doors to decision makers who would listen to what the chamber had to say and reaffirm that we wanted X, Y, and Z in macro macroeconomic policy and X, Y, and Z in microeconomic policy for the city centre. And that's actually what it was. And what ended up happening, Nigel, was our membership started to really increase. We got to record levels and we kept engaging people as best. We, we lost people along the way. And I know that certain people would probably still say you didn't do enough for X, Y, and Z sectors. Can't keep everyone happy. But I think we did enough. But what happened in the chamber was it became Groundhog Day. Because the truth is, Nigel, that the chamber is a lobbying, a business lobbying organization. It can't decide to dig up a Connell Street in the morning. But we can only lobby the council to do that and to do it and represent our members' views. And what you realise is that things move so slowly and we can see it. I mean, look at the Collins Street's only been done now. I actually was going to put that in my census form, but so Collins Street finished in <laughs> 20, 21, 22. But it's, it's only happening now. But we were talking about that in, I don't know, when was it, 2017 or something like that? And we were told that the money had to be drawn by, down in X month's time. Mm. Nonsense, really. But that became so frustrating for me that you were going around in circles, round in circles, being told, yeah, that's going to start. And then you're going back to your members and you're saying to them, it's going to start in April. April comes, your members saying, why isn't it starting? You're going back saying, it's actually now July. You're coming back to them in July saying, it's actually now November. You just kind of, I don't want to say you lose heart, but it just becomes a bit frustrating. So after a while, I just realized I had to move on. But I would say, Nigel, I loved every minute of it because you could see you were, in, you were privy to conversations and could understand the mindsets of people. So do you know sometimes when you're, like you see Twitter, for example, and there's lots of people commenting on X, Y, and Z in the city. And I can understand that frustration. I share it. But I was also privy to conversations and understood why there was delays that you maybe couldn't put into the public sphere. And that was difficult sometimes because 
I can tell you now, Nigel, like when I look at people like, um, like let's just say, take people like Con Murray or Pat or, or you know, Dave Conway, all these people are trying their best. I know they are, um, but yet they get criticised. And I can understand that. And I'm not here to defend them. They're big enough and, yeah. and ugly enough to yeah. defend themselves. But I could see what they were trying to do. And they were as frustrated as, as we were. But of course, they can't say it. But it's interesting because I wrote down the word communication there. And I understand when you're doing deals behind the scenes and when things are happening. And like, for instance, I'll give you an example on that. When the Opera Centre was, when we were waiting for years for the Opera Centre to get to site, and finally we, f- we, get the, um, we get the blueprint for what's going to happen and there's no living in it. In my head, I was expecting there to be at least two tower blocks of living because the fact of the matter is the city centre needs living. And there was none. Now, immediately criticism and people like and me cri- and others... And we criticised the two of them. Yeah, and you, but there was no explanation or no communication from that entity, either 2030 or the local authority, to just explain their logic. And maybe it's because they're looking at Cleves and, you know, you don't want to be scuppering. But, but we're not living in a, a secret society here. No. You know, it's not like we're, we're, you know, if there's a genuine reason and, and there's hope for the opera centre in terms of FDI that might start getting livability going... And I suppose the word communication for me is where maybe they f- they fell down. If they were clearly, and even if they pulled people like me aside who might be critical on Twitter and say, Nigel, look, there's yeah. something coming down the track. Just hold your horses, don't shout. And instead what happens is you just, and I'm not saying that I should be communicated to, but I mean, the people should be communicated to. Yeah, but if you read their, if you read their current strategy, they, they recognize that and said that they're going to improve their communication with the public. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's. I think what you're saying is fair, but I do think that to give credit to 2030, they know it and they're trying to address it. Yeah. And I think what I've seen recently is that there is more, a little bit more communication coming out of messaging coming out of them. But you see, Nigel, I mean, at the other side of it, then anytime they say something, they're being ripped apart in mm. public too. But so chamber of commerce, you I, and I could see you enjoy that because you, first of all, you networked yourself brilliantly. You got to, and I remember meeting you in the early stages of that. And I remember there was, I think it was one of your first chamber dinners and you were reticent about speaking at the dinner. And I hope you don't mind me saying yeah, this, yeah. but there was a nervousness in you about public speaking and maybe presenting yourself in front of a room of those big boys with yeah. the suits. But over time that changed and you became quite confident and I watched some of your videos and I watched some of the stuff that went on. You, you, you changed probably in a, as a confident person, I would think, you, as in externally confident. Yeah, I think, I, I, yeah, it's probably a fair point. I, do you know what, Nigel, to this day I actually still struggle a little bit with it. The reason is because certainly when I started in the chamber, I was saying to myself, I'm standing up here in front of all these business leaders and who am I to tell them the way the world should be? You know, that, that was in my head. And to be honest, sometimes it still is in my head a little bit like that. I don't take myself too seriously, you see. So, but I guess what ended up happening was I realized, Nigel, during the first year or so of the chamber, and you're right, at the start, I didn't think I was going to have to turn it into such a loud mouthpiece. But I had to do it because if I didn't do it, nobody else would. And I, it, cumul- it, it culminated in... Do you remember when that national development plan, that most recent one, and we were going to see... Do you remember the, the big headline was going to see all the all the cities were going to outgrow, uh, we're going to grow at a faster pace than Dublin and all that. I saw that report. I read it and I just thought, what a load of bullshit this report is. And nobody, the silence was deafening in Limerick. It was amazing because they can't, you know, the university, LIT, the council, they can't criticize the government because that's their taskmaster, but the chamber can. And that's where I took that mantle upon ourselves that we would say, this is not good enough. And when it happened, you should have seen the kerfuffle from, it was from the, the political parties at the time saying, how dare we come out so strongly against it? We're saying you'll grow 50%. What's wrong with you? And I'm saying, yeah, you're saying it in paper, but in reality it won't be delivered. And we're seeing it. It's interesting you say that because I was talking with someone recently about this and there's a feeling in Limerick at the moment that maybe those who speak out against the way the city is moving, right? Yeah. Be it living, be it the public realm, be it the traffic management strategies are non-existent of, be it the directions of a country, that if you do genuinely speak up and say, I don't think that's the right way, mm-hmm. you're told you're a bold boy. You're not in the right, you're not in the, you're not in the um, Limerick 2030 camp, or you're not in the sort of, we're going to take over the world yeah. camp that's at the side of the opera side, and you're bold. And therefore you're not to be listened to 
and you're isolated. And what happens then is that the people with a bit of power in the city, and I mean business people, you know, intelligent, possibly retired people, they're afraid to speak in case they don't get their planning permissions yeah. or they don't get their rates reductions. What are your thoughts? Okay, I'll caveat that though, right? That's a fair, I think that's a very fair point, right? And yeah, and I, look, I've seen it myself in my own career where you're told, get back into line but I never really wanted to get back into line. So I never cared about that. And I was confident enough in myself around that. But I'll say this to Nigel, I see a lot of people commenting, right? On negatively, some constructively, and I, I always accept constructive criticism, Nigel, but I don't accept criticism from people who don't know what they're talking, talking about. about. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of people in this city who talk a great game and really and truly have no idea what the context is in which they're talking. They talk about a lack of this, a lack of that, yet they don't know what the strategy is because they're not involved in the conversations. And then they have a, they feel they have a divine right to be involved in every conversation. That's not how a city a city works. Yes, there's obviously a, it has to be a mechanism. But, but is there not a, is there is the strategy so secret and so ingenious? Strategies there to see, Nigel. Read the development plans; they're there. Yeah, but I mean, when I first heard the twenty thirty plan being launched, and I sat in the Strand Hotel. It there. spoke about putting the city at the heart of the region, right? Yeah. Yeah. And halfway through it, we're watching Mungret grow, we're watching possibly now Moiras becoming, which is brilliant, by the way, because I see Moiras has come together as a region. That is a success yeah. story. We're seeing Castle Troy, where I grew up, blossoming. And you kind of get a sense that the city centre is continuing to be undermined because nothing is happening in terms of putting people here. All right, but every city centre feels this. Like, we think that Limerick is this unique example of that. It's not. I remember being in, in Budapest a few years back, and they were talking to me about Budapest being hauled out, and I'm looking at this city at envy, thinking the place is buzzing. We have to understand that the, the city centre, Nigel, as we knew it, even when, we, when you and I were kids, we're the same age, mm -hmm. when we were kids, the city centre was buzzing. We all came into town to do our messages, Right. We don't do that anymore. The world has changed, yet we keep thinking, well, why is a city dead? Because we shop online. Yeah, but, but okay, therefore, if we were to say uh, by 2030, which is eight years, right. if we were to have, if we were to be the success and say that the city is now the beating heart, yeah. by understanding, and, and I think I used to have to pander to retailers and I would be of the belief that retail, yes, retail will always exist. It will change and it might end up becoming a shop front. And actually, Limerick is ideally placed for small shop front places for retailers. You go in, you buy online, but your, your stuff is shipped to you. But the... The city, therefore, has to start looking at itself as being possibly an experiential city, a place where it's a living, breathing night, evening economy improves. It's a place where retired people decide, I don't want to live in a house in Mungret anymore or in Gorbally and I move back into town, so therefore it's safe. And the public yeah, yeah, we're obsessed with building three and four bedroom houses. This is the problem, Nigel. The demographic shift is changing and we are told to build one and two bed premises, but we don't because for some mad reason we continue to look for three and four beds. We have to start building better, more suitable accommodation for younger people and smaller families. And retired is, people as well. Yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And but we don't now, Nigel. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying for a second. I'm like there's a lot of facets to this. One is that retail is changing, and the city, the city is changing to an experiential offering versus a a, a functional uh, retail offering. That's that's going to minimize and continues to minimize as retail takes or as online takes over. You definitely need to have more premise in the city. Let's be honest, we know Limerick is effectively the entire city centre is Georgian. That does hamstring us a lot yeah. because it costs a lot to redo houses. And you've seen that in um, both being in the Chamber of Commerce and yeah, in your current exactly. role, and we come to that in a moment. So we know exactly how much that costs to do. It's huge money. And as you know, conservationists want you to keep everything. And it's, there has to be a, 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 a... What's going to happen is some of these Georgian houses are going to fall down because nobody will be able to do them up. And there were, when, then where we stand. But there's plenty of brownfield sites around the sea that we could look at. You look at even the gasworks. I agree with you, Nigel. I did think that there should have been accommodation in 2030. I did say that at the time. Sorry, in the opera. Or, and, 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 yeah, sorry, opera. There are still plenty of spaces around the city. I despair at the state of that old Dunn site. It, it, it withers me to see it for as long as it's sitting there. So, and, you know, so yes, I do want to see more and more um, accommodation like the Strand Apartments and how beautifully are they done mm. and maintained well and, yeah. whereas then you look at Mount Kennet and that's just every example of how we got it wrong but we do know how to get it right in the city so the more of it the better And but you know what Nigel I said one thing I do as a city manager is the is, the, is put Nicholas, Nicholas Street, Street yeah. the second thing I do and I, this might come as a shock to you 
And some people, because I drive a two litre diesel, I ban cars. Wow. And I'll tell you why I ban cars. I walk down Paddy's Day through town and it's so better when there's no cars in the street. However, I'm going to caveat this comment because I can see Emmett O'Brien turning his <laughs> spin in his seat now as I said that. It's going <laughs> I, on my headline actually, at the top uh, of the podcast. Yeah. I tell you what, but I, you can't do that and I'll tell you why. Because the public transport Build a is ring not road. good enough. Yeah. No, public transport is not good enough, Nigel. Mm. I'd love to see cars off the sea. I think we'd all like to see that. But the truth of the matter is if we did that in the morning, the city would grind to a halt. Mm. We do not have good enough public transport we have to create a vision for better public transport and transition over time, except that that will take time. But imagine you said to me once, or there, you know, you were talking earlier about what do I want to see in 40 years time? I'd love to see a car-free city and a city that actually has transport that runs effectively like it does in so many other European cities. And by the way, like a car-free city, and for, for listeners who may be balking at James's idea on that, I mean, a car-free city does not necessarily mean that the cars stop at the parkway or down at... No, uh, down. No, no, it, no. A car-free city is maybe two or three blocks exactly. are car-free exactly. and it suddenly becomes a lovely space to be, am I right? Oh, absolutely, because you have to allow... You have, I mean, common sense has to prevail in all these things. There's access. You yeah. have to allow people who may have mobility issues, they have to be able to get into the city and do their shopping. But unfortunately in this city, we want everyone to be able to pull up outside our shop nip in, get their bits and go back out. That's not practical. But as I said, I would love to see, like I, and I've, I've written about this so many times, Nigel, where I said mm -hmm. about the underutilized railway lines, that Ennis line passes through Myros, it passes through Corbury. Why don't we have stops to take people into town? Do you think that's achievable? Of course Because people is. get laughed at when, and you're a big thinker and you get it. it. Yeah, I got laughed no. at it. I remember when I said it, people were going, James, you cop, the, cop on. Yeah, at the minute, the population density is, is probably not there to do it, but we have to think in the future. There's, like when you look at the underground they built in London, they didn't build the underground for the current, for their current time, they built it for future generations. So we have to think bigger and longer. And if you ask what does Limerick needs to do to cop on and, and start playing at a better level, we need to start thinking bigger for the future. But balance it with reality and a series of steps and milestones along the way and not just be self- Now, you use there. the word, and I've heard you in the past use the word reality, right? And it's been it's been pulled out of the bag because I'm, I'm a dreamer and sometimes, no, I mean, if I share a picture and say we should be lighting the castle a little bit better, that it's fairly achievable. So I'm not, I'm not dreamer, totally bonkers, right? Dreamer. Yeah. But what I mean is that with the reality, yeah. when we see the visions on Opera side saying we're going to take over the world and the marketing brands of all of this stuff and nothing's really happening. The reality kind of also has to come in the delivery of what we're being told that our city is going to achieve. Mm -hmm. And we're being told that we're game changing. We're going to be groundbreaking. We're going to be the best city, English speaking city, you know, this side of the... And I buy into all of that. And I fully believe I love the place I'm from. Yeah. But until we start seeing genuine delivery that really does change the game. We're not seeing reality. We're seeing bluff. Oof, yeah, okay. I, I, I take your... And again, that's your frustration at the lack of pace, Yeah, and right? I'm, I'm being hard here. Yeah, I, I know you, you know, And I know and I'm I being... Say, and I will say that I do know that 2030's staff, Nigel, are probably the most frustrated of them all because they're the ones having to deal with the red tape that we don't even know about. Yeah. So that's why I always say give them credit because... It might be slower than we would hope. And you're absolutely right. I think we all say that, but they would say that themselves. But I'm telling you, the work that's going on to try and get this off the ground. And I suppose now we're seeing it. Now, you take that statement. What did you say? We're trying, trying to take over the world. That's yeah, the, I mean, I, and, I, and I get it. I suppose where I'm coming from is that, and this is the question I might put you. Have we been too good at our marketing and public relations in the local authority system in Limerick, because we had to change this, mm. we had to change the perceptions out there. And it, when I came back, I remember people were so down on it. Yeah. So Laura Ryan and others have played a huge role in changing that. But have we? Has that been kind of a step ahead of where we are in terms of delivery? And maybe what's happening is that the delivery, the delivery of the marketing and brand stuff has been so good kind of overtaken the delivery stuff and we're getting frustrated because we've been told we are as good, but we're not really that good. I think, okay, so the, the problem you have here is that there's what has been, those kind of statements are visionary statements, right? And visionary statements are statements that, I mean, if you were, if I was advising you on a company strategy, which is what I do in my day job these days, you set a vision, Nigel, which is sometimes almost an unachievable goal you know, to be the biggest X in, in the world, biggest energy company in the world, to be the biggest consultancy house, you know, whatever it is, biggest social media mm -hmm. brand, whatever. You may never achieve that. Like Ingenium's goal is to be the, the, the global leader in human performance, right? Solutions. It would never be achieved in my lifetime or when I'm the CEO. It'll take too long. But at least we have a guiding star by which we try to aim. 
I want to come to Ingedium because we've been, I, and I know we diverted there because I was, I was on your path, your career path. Um, tell me about Ingenium. So the chamber, you, you, when you were in the chamber, you got to a point where, look, it was, you were going around in circles, Groundhog Day was happening and you probably got introduced to a few nice players in the world of business and you came across Hugh. Tell me how Ingenium came to you. Uh, well, I knew Hugh. Yeah, not, it's, that's, you'd have known him. Yeah, yeah. Not, not before. Before actually, how I got to know Hugh was I knew his father actually, Jim, who was involved in the Civic Trust, and, and Jimmy, who were were great friends to this day. Even though there's a forty year age gap between us, there's we're still pals. You know, we get on really well. He's very young at heart, and uh, and Jimmy and myself hit it off. And he said to me, "You need to meet my son. You could play at a bigger level." That that was his message to me, and he introduced me to Hugh. And actually, I got to know Hugh over a, f- a few years, and he helped me actually when I was going for the chamber job to get my thinking right. So, ever before Ingenium. But he did say to me at the time, I may have something in a few years that you that might suit you. And three years later, he picked up the phone. Well, we obviously would meet regularly, but he picked up the phone and he said, right, are you ready to come into Ingenium? And, uh, Tell me what Ingenium does. Well, I suppose, look, there's there's... A number of elements to it, but we're we're strategy consultants, so we work with companies to build strategies. Um, and we started we've we've started doing that. We, we I suppose we started off doing that around this region, but we started quickly getting bigger and doing it firstly around the country, but then started doing it internationally. And we got a, a major contract with um, Exxon Mobil. You probably know that that energy company, mm-hmm. um, and ran training programs with them. So then we opened a training arm of our of our business, which focuses. There was some safety training and risk training, but also leadership training. And then we have a, a, our new section is we've opened Pathway, which is a tool help to help make kids make better decisions for their career. So, you know, you know, like you asked me a while ago, did I know what I wanted to do in school? No, I didn't. Um, but this will help you. It, it kind of tests you on a few areas in terms of your decision making, your hobbies, your interests, your favorite subjects, puts it together and kind of through this algorithm spits out subjects that you should study in third level. And it's amazing. All the testing, Nigel, was spot on. Like I got environmental science, you know, like my friend, actually a friend of mine who works for Leeward <coughs> did it. His degree was his, uh, was archeology span and languages and it came out archeology span and Spanish. Like it just worked. So it's a really cool thing and it's only starting off and I'm hoping now it really takes off because it will help kids have better conversations. So, and then we, we, last year, two years ago, we bought a digital company. So Appiercom was the company we bought them and now we have digital solutions. So we're building software. We actually just built the visitor app for the, the university hospital. So if you want to go and visit someone, it's our software now you're, you're using oh, cool. to, to do it. So it's really cool. It's all these so it's multifaceted. Elements. It's not just um, the, yeah. because the, the leadership thing. You, when you, when you first joined in, in Genium, the word leadership was coming out and it is about you were dealing with a lot of leaders you know people at the very top how would you define leadership uh, is you, it impossible yeah to you do? can't you can see this is the, the trick with leadership it's the hard part is give me a word that comes to your mind when you think of leadership give me the first word the top dog okay but give me a trait what do you associate strong okay but for other people strong means aggressive Okay, so this is the problem you have. So we watch the news tonight and Michal Martin might be on the news, Nigel, right? And the two of us sit next to each other with a cup of cocoa watching the news. And you say to me, isn't he wonderful? The way he communicates, he's just such a humble man. And I can look at him and think, what a weak character. And that's because everybody sees the world through their eyes. And that we are a product of our environment as well as our genetics. So imagine you grew up in a house, Nigel, where maybe your parents were very diplomatic. And you could talk back to your parents and they kind of just debated with you and, you know, off you went. And then I grew up in a house where you did not talk back and your parents were very autocratic and told you the way the world should be. We go into the workplace. Your vision of leadership is, dip- is diplomacy. My vision of leadership is more assertive. So when we work for somebody, you work for someone who's assertive, you find them aggressive. I work for someone who's diplomatic, I find them weak. So the problem we all have is that, and this is, a, this is and I see this in politicians all the time, all you can do as a leader is be authentic to yourself. And if that's not good enough for the people who are following you, fine. But if you start trying to be something you're not, you'll get found out. So just be you and hope that enough people follow you. And if they don't follow you, Nigel, you're not a leader. And if you are, or if they do, you are a leader. And what leadership really is about is setting a vision. You have to tell people where we're going, leading them. Where are you leading them? Because if you don't know where you're leading them, you're not, you've nowhere to go and no one follows you. Your point earlier about communication, that's crucial. It's all great having a vision up here in your brain. You have to be able to communicate it. And an awful lot of people are very smart, but they can't communicate to the masses. 
and I mean communicate up high and down low and speak in people's language. And it's bringing people on a journey and believing that the, 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 the journey when you look out the window is a fun one. Yeah, but also... And we're going to get there. But you have to understand that with every journey, what we're talking about is change. And with every change brings resistance because people don't like change, Nigel. We go to bed at night and we want the world to be the same as we found it, the, you know, we left it the night before. But change brings pain for people and worry. So you have to build enough empathy and crucially compassion. And what that means is empathy is listening but compassion is action on it. Now, it may, I'm not saying that all of a sudden you have to change your plan because Nigel's upset that I want to put a red light up against the castle versus a blue light. That's not what it's about. But it's sitting down with Nigel, listening to him, and then talking to Nigel about why the red light needs to be there, not the blue light. Do you understand what I mean? A hundred percent. And I think quite often, you know, when we bring that back to the Limerick thing is that I'm a hundred percent aware, as I think many others are, that, you know, there are reasons things are not happening. And some of that actually comes down to budget. We're not a very, we're not a loaded city, you know, so that, you know, when you come up with great ideas and you come up with things, there are people in there who have little budgets and they know, I would love to do that, but I just yeah. haven't got the cash. But coming back to the city at the moment, are, you, are the local authority diplomatic or are they assertive <clears throat> or is the current management structure in your mind? I mean, are they, they, should they be more diplomatic? I, I don't know how to answer that because it depends. I mean, there are, I mean, you have to appreciate there are times when they can't tell the world everything mm -hmm. and they have to just, I mean, let's be honest, Nigel, you're paid to make decisions and you have to make decisions and people will criticize your decisions. You know, not everybody is going to agree with everything. So sometimes that assertiveness has to happen. There are times, though, you have to go and get the public feel. Now, to be fair, isn't that what the councillors are supposed to be? Aren't they supposed to be the pulse of the, of the public? Aren't they supposed to be our representatives? Are they not the ones who are supposed to sit down and discuss things with the directors? And some are, and, and others maybe you'll hear about in a couple of years' time when they're running for election again. But yes, that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not the directors of services' job to be down and telling the world, on, the world and its mother on the street what is going to happen. There has to be a mechanism by which the organization communicates more effectively to the to the public. But the, the public representatives are the conduit. That's why we elect them. If it's not for that, what the hell are well, they? I spoke to a couple of people recently. I think it was Anne and Anne Cronin and um, Ailish Drake in a podcast. And one of the things they said is that public consultation we don't do very well because and, and I was involved in interestingly the Connell Street project from from day dot I got involved with a couple of people on looking at that project. Sure. Uh, and the sense everybody got was that we were being given an end result. Yeah. And we were being asked to give our opinion, yeah. but were, they weren't budging with any changes. They were giving us that. So that's not public consultation. That's sort of, that's dictating to you what you're going to get, but saying we listened, we did, you know, we, we had all these people writing into us. Um, and I think that's possibly where the frustration lies is that maybe the, it's the sense that we are being told, I mean, I'm hearing at the moment that behind the scenes, there's this world-class waterfront is the next thing we're going to have unleashed on us. And I, I have no doubt that it's there's going to be brilliant stuff in that because if one thing we've done really well is the waterfront, where has been, or maybe there has been engagement with people somewhere. I wasn't asked, I'm living and walking the river every day. I wasn't asked my thoughts on what we should do. Um, but we'll have this plan unveiled. Sure. And then we'll be given public consultation probably. Mm. And my experience has been, they're in there deciding what they're doing now. And mm. um, public consultation ain't going to be part of it. They'll ask us and they pretend they're listening. And then, so I suppose, you see where I'm coming from on this, that it's, that we're being dictated to in terms of our future without it being part of, the, the, the Nigel who lives beside the castle isn't being asked. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah, and, and, and I, get to, I do get the point. I would argue again, the councillors are supposed to be fighting that view. But I do also accept that public, I, I take your point on Connell Street. I remember going to see those artist drawings or whatever you want to call it, architect's drawings in it. And it was almost like a fait accompli and it was very frustrating. And we were giving feedback as to what we thought should be in there. Some of it was listened to, some of it was put in the bin. You have to accept that. When you talk about the waterfront, and this is an interesting point on the waterfront, because I always felt that Limerick, it's our biggest asset is that river. If we can only t maximize the potential within that river. Like I, for example, I don't understand why we don't have a riverboat restaurant on that. What a lovely you know, night that would be going down the river. But Nigel, Sometimes we only see progression when we look back at it yeah. through the rearview mirror. Look at the state of our city in the 80s. Look at the state of it. When we grew mm -hmm. up in the 80s, Limerick was a derelict, dirty city. Now look at Limerick. For all that's wrong in the city, 
my God. Have oh, no, and I mean, way. I remember sitting outside Mickey Martin's in about a year after I'd returned home and saying to someone, I was bringing a friend down to Limerick and they said, why are you bringing in? And I remember that it was just this conversation that was just everyone was so down. Now the down on ourselves, so that when I get annoyed and frustrated, it's not because we're crap. It's actually because we're on the verge of really doing something cool. But do you not think, though, Nigel, hold on a minute, though, just to go back and challenge you a bit on this one, yeah. because you're big into the social media side, much more than I am. Do you think we are exaggerating the frustration because all of a sudden social media is giving a voice to everybody. Well, I, I put, it, I put it like this. Anything that I'm reading about cities at the moment is saying that urbanism is going to be the future and that the positioning of people and densifying the city centre rather than continuing with sprawl is particularly when we're looking at a, at a global crisis at the moment and an environmental issue that you'd understand that we're not doing that in Limerick City. No, I agree. And, I, and so therefore we are actually going against what all trends are telling us we should be doing and I should be rightfully able to go, I don't, I'm not an expert, but I don't feel it in my waters. I like to think that I have a good instinct for things and I don't feel the direct, particularly when you see a development, the city centre has been idle for 10 years, having no shagging people living in it. Yeah. No, and I do get that. And, and that's fair, Nigel. That's fair. And we, I just said it. We, we need yeah. to see more one and two beds. In and the I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Not three and four beds out in the, out in the suburbs, right? However, there are some people who still want to live in their three beds in the suburbs. But the point is, Nigel, that social media has magnified mm. everything. And everybody who thinks they have an opinion, whether it's right or wrong, feels that their opinion is justified. And when they don't get their own way, they beat their drum. I'm not digging yeah. you here, right? Oh, no, 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 I, I, but I agree. But is that not kind of a public consultation? I mean, I'm sure I'd love to see all public okay. consultation documents that everyone gets a chance to write in and maybe be, not be listened to. Okay. This is a public form of public consultation. You'll always get bonkers people writing bonkers thing in public consultations. You know, you asked me, what would I hope that it would be like in, 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 the, in the future? The first, the first thing I'd love to see is that we become a much more tolerant city. This city... Oh, Nigel, it wears me out. We're constantly at war. Yeah. We're constantly at war with you. Fighting over everything. We're never happy. If Jesus himself came down and blessed the city, we complained that we didn't want Jesus, we wanted Allah. <laughs> like, it's just, we're never it's happy. It's the munchens thing, yeah. Now, let me just explain this, though, because this is important. Social media has given a voice to extremism as well, though. Mm. And this is where it's dangerous. And extremism brings a lack of tolerance. The first thing we need to do in this city is start listening to each other, talking less and mm. listening more. We're all well able to shout about my opinion is this and your opinion is wrong. And that's wrong, Nigel. Mm. It's just the wrong way I'm to not agree, But it works both ways. It, no, absolutely. And this is my point. We have to listen to each other. What I'm saying, Nigel, is what I see now is a lot of extremism in social media. Far right views, far yeah. left views, right? Yeah. And they're beating their drum. And here's the thing. The far right are intolerant and they don't care about being known as intolerant. The far left is intolerant too, Nigel, but they wrap it up in a nice bow. And how dare you take on either side? So what we have to do is stop, listen to each other. Like when I say something like, we shouldn't have cars in the city. As you know, some people are going, shut up, I'm turning him off now, I have enough of listening to him. But we need to understand why I wouldn't want a car in the mm -hmm. city. And, and realize that it can't just happen in the morning. We're talking about a 30-year plan. And in 30 years, we won't have cars in the city. But instead, what we do is, when I say we shouldn't have cars in the city, someone else says, you're wrong. End of discussion. There's no debate. We don't mm -hmm. learn from each other. So what I'd love to see, Nigel, and maybe that goes back to your idea of public consultation. If we could set up a system that was truly tolerant of each other's views, and instead of arguing and fighting and me trying to get one up Don't on you... Don't put it in a hotel room, though, where yeah. we all bounce off each but other. But instead of me trying to get a one up on you, Nigel, and you trying to get one up back on me, yeah. and you'll have your revenge in the next session, maybe we just need to shut up and listen to each other. And, and I'm not talking about us listening to each other. I'm talking about society listening to each other and listening to why someone would think so far on that direction, yet someone else sits mm. over here. And try and find some common ground. It might not always be possible. And it is, and, and 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 I agree with you. Social media, and that's why I'm trying to do things like podcasts like this as well. Because what it does is it gives it gives voices to ideas and possibly puts me on the spot as well at times if I've been wrong about things. And I agree with you. It's not. I hope to think I'm not far left or anything. But I'll give you one example that struck me recently, and then we'll finish off with our posterity and look at the the good things that we're doing and where we want to go. I was in a nursing home not long back visiting an old friend. And I went through the doors 
and the paint was a sort of a magnolia paint and the pictures of you know, the, the odd piece of an artwork sticking up and it was depressing. It was grey, it was dull. And it said to me, they're kind of fast-tracking death in here. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. it didn't feel... I'm... 30 years from now, I'm that soldier, right? Unless I have a very long life and I'm... 40 years I, though, look, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm putting 30 down because it's, I want to be real. And, and um, it freaked the living life out of me. And also, at the same time, we know we're an aging population, yeah. which means that in 30 years' time, there's going to be a hell of a lot of us over 70. In fact, every child born today is going to live to be 100, possibly. Yeah. And when you talk about that planning... I know when I talk about my Limerick that most of the stuff I'd like to see happen in Limerick mm. that I would really love, I'm not going to be virile and young enough to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So there's a sort of a, there's a decency in fighting for something you'll never enjoy. But part of that as well is, are we properly thinking about what's coming down the track? Environmental stuff, mm. age um, and that's what you say about planning. And so I'll probably never sit on a train in the city, but I'd love to see rail happening. Yeah. And you have to fight for that now. And I wonder, is do, do decision makers think that far down? Are they are thinking about, they want to see their delivery mm. is the stuff that they'll go down in the annals of history for, not the things that they started sowing yeah. the oats yeah, yeah, of. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? You know, was there a question even in that? Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think there is sometimes a lack of vision in this city. I, I think we'll agree in that, right? But I do also think that there is, if only we'd, yeah, it, it goes back to my point about listening to each other because it's when you listen to each other, you realize you educate yourself and you realize maybe there's a better way of doing things than the way I thought. I think what we need to do is we need to stop focusing on the now and we need to look 40 years into the future and give people the space to, to, to plan. So if we want to talk about a future, imagine, imagine going forward. So two of us are out in the nursing home now and we're sitting next to each other, right? And we're thinking and we're talking about, do you remember 40 years ago, Nigel, when we had this podcast and we were having a chat? Imagine a city in 40 years, Nigel, where firstly, we do have our own Bunratty in the city and mm -hmm. we're seeing tourists flood in and, 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 and it's buzzing and it's thriving. Imagine a city where public transport actually works. So as two old, old men, we can get on a, a train or a bus and actually go around the city knowing that we'll actually arrive on time and not be stressed out of our minds. And the third one, Nigel, is imagine a city where we didn't know, where we no longer burned fossil fuels. Mm. Imagine we were actually a green city. Now, they all seem very far away right now. They're visionary, very much so, but they're achievable. Ireland was a country that was completely powered by renewable energy at one stage. We built Arna Crusha. Mm. Oh my God, we were world leaders. Ireland is, let's be honest, in, on a number of occasions has led the world. Smoking ban. Ireland did that. You know, let's call a spade a spade. We are visionary people. But imagine if that vision also meant that when the two of us are of that age, that we're not in a nursing home, mm. that we're living in a nicely constructed retirement village in the heart of the city that allows us to live and have access to the things that mm. we might need, but also able to go to Portley's pub or to the the, the Rock or, or other pubs I'm around not Nicholas. Going to rock <laughs> when I'm I go to Portley's, all right. <laughs> but do you know where I'm coming from? That that's the planning, and I think for me is that I don't yeah. want to be in the nursing home that's covered in magna magnolia paint. Uh, I want us that. to be planning about that. Anyway, as we the posterity podcast, it's about the, the future thing, and we were speaking about that there. Do you feel? I do feel we, as a city, um, are going in the right direction. Yes, I do. I really do, and it's it, it is, and it's it's slower than we hoped. But we have, we have to accept that slowness happens. I still think national policy is wrong. It's it's one thing writing something on paper, Nigel. Second thing is delivering it, and I just feel that you know this this nonsense that. Limerick will grow faster in Dublin. No, it won't. It just won't. Because the decision makers in Dublin will not make it really happen. They'll write it in paper to try and get themselves elected. I think politically, we're not in a great position. Locally. Very, yeah, we're not in a great position. I think we are, we've seen it coming for a while. You have, at one stage, you remember we had Michael Noonan and Janice Sullivan, both ministers in the city, and we saw the benefit of that. We now have no minister in the city. We have a junior minister in the county. We have uh, no dominant party, so we're split. So we have, now that might be a good thing because diversity is good. So you have a Sinn Féin, you have, um, you have Fianna Gael, you've got Fianna Fáil and, and Green. Uh, Labour is gone, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So like, 
that is that is a strength and a weakness in itself because the strength is that we get diverse views across the city. The weakness is that we don't translate that as a united voice into the international. And without a united voice international. And I also wonder sometimes, and it's not to any disrespect to her, because I know that there's amazing work, but sometimes you get a sense that maybe their eye is more on how they can rise up their particular party and it's not about the actual deliverability on the ground um, yeah. at the end of the day. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And I mean, I think... I know, sorry, Nigel, I'd love to see a stronger political yes. voice for Limerick. Okay. If we, if we had that... Oh, what a city, you know, what a county we could become. And I think if we get that united voice, because that is, Nigel, no individual is smarter than the collective. Mm -hmm. Let's never forget that. We need to get a, a mechanism by which we all start coming together, talking, debating, discussing, arguing, fine, mm -hmm. but constructively. And then speak with one voice on behalf of the city. This is what Limerick needs. This is what Limerick wants. Now, we may be that directly elected mayor is going to be that voice. I don't think it will. Personally, mm. it I doesn't look like it's going in that direction. No, yeah, I don't think, I mean, but I don't think it will anyway. Mm. But I think we, it's a pity. Do you know who I was very impressed with? I met Jana Sullivan when I was doing my thesis on leadership. And I said to myself, it's a pity Jan is finishing her political career. If she was starting it now in a society which now is more, uh, allows women to progress much more than the, I suppose the world that she grew up in, I think Jan would have been a phenomenal uh, politician for this region. She was, she was a great politician. She could have been phenomenal. And I also, I always remember speaking to Michael Noonan very, in a one-on-one in a, in a -on -one conversation about why he went into politics. And I'm not any political partner, Nigel, in case, mm -hmm. in case anyone thinks that I'm trying to push anything. I was blown away by Noonan. I know he had his critics, uh, in particular when he was in health and, and, and that type of stuff. I get it. I'm not getting into that side of it. But I can tell you, as a person who was dedicated to trying his best for the city and county, he was on the ball. Mm. We need that again. And we've had them over the years. You know, you look at the likes of Kemi, you know, there was loads of them. Donnick O'Malley, like, hello, what? look at what he, the legacy he's left behind. We need someone else. And I, you know, Nigel. And, and even, even I mean, if you were thinking, let's say 20s, 30s, only eight years away, I mean, are there any, and I don't want you to name names, but do, do you see anyone coming up through the system, through the political system that could be that soldier? And, and by answering no to that, what you're saying is that we really need to start thinking about who we're electing, by the way. Yeah. I, 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 okay, there are, there are a couple of local councillors that I think I would rate highly, I have to say. I'm not going to sing no, that. No, I don't want that. It's not fair. No, I don't want that. It's not fair. No, I don't want that. Letting people out. Do you know, uh, do you know I, I look at the, the, the councillors we currently have, or not the councillors, but I look at the politicians we currently have in, in the city. Take the city for a second. I like Kieran O'Donnell. I think, he's, I think he really tries his best. Uh, he needs to improve those some of those cringy videos he puts up on LinkedIn tell us about the announcements. I see I, him standing, he's, he'll, he'll be knocked down if he stays in the motorway <laughs> well, anymore. Well, he'll be blown away by a plane <laughs> in Shannon if he keeps going. But then you have, um, you have I think Morris is really good, Morris Quinlan is really good. Quinlevin. Uh, Quinlevin, I should say, is really good. Uh, and I've known Morris a long time and I think he does great work. I like Brian Ledden a lot. I've always got a kind of a sm small soft spot for the Green Party because of the environmental agenda. We have to bring that to the fore. And then Willie has been a fulcrum of the of political um, this political work for a long time. Maybe it's time uh, Willie's probably coming to the end of his journey as well. And it's who will replace Willie? Mm. That is a critical question for Fianna Fáil in this city. Um, and interesting, any females? Like Jan, yes. you, Jan, you rate it highly, but uh, Jan, I, uh, Jan is someone I rate very, very highly. Um, I see, but you know as well, Nigel. There's a there is a we need to get more women into power very quickly and this is a fact right let me this is there's academic research on this that has shown that future generations sorry in in modern and and future societies actually women will become will be better more effective leaders than men because we're becoming a different type of society and the skills that women have as leaders will be more suited to that society so actually the more we can help women get into power and make decisions the better it will be. And that's not me saying that now to just get an old pat in the back and, and keep mm. women happy. It's nothing got to do with that. It's just a fact. We are a better society when we are. And that's coming from society. academic research that you're probably doing inside an ingenium. Well, I've read the yep, academic yep. papers mm -hmm. that talk about this, this implicit leadership here that I was talking about earlier on. This is just a fact. We are a better society. And that's why, when look at, look at the political leaders that are around the globe, Nigel. Look at the likes of Angela Merkel. All right, you can criticise her energy policy, which is coming to the fore now, you know. But what a brilliant leader she was. You look at Jacinda Ardern in, in, in New Zealand. Come, in, come into Ireland. Who stands up on a pedestal that high? There are a couple of young ones, uh, young uh, female politicians coming through. So you look at McEntee, seems to be really smart. Um, 
I think Mary Lou McDonald is smart. Um, but there isn't a huge amount jumping off the page. They're not, not enough high profile. When I look at some of the political leaders we've had in the past, when you look at McAleese and Robinson, the two of them speak for themselves. And look at a society. Imagine they were the Taoiseachs. Imagine a society we'd have with them running it. Be far better, I think, a bar, far better society. And the final question then, I mean, posterity in... We were listening back to this podcast when we're sitting in our beds in Camillus's, right? And um, the three things that you'd love to see change now or over the next eight years as we lead to the 2030. I think, unfortunately, they put a date to something which is probably not helpful, but we're putting 2030 as our milestone. What, really, what would the three things you'd love to see that are achievable, mm. and that are not my mad batch sure, yeah. stuff that I put out? Well, one, I told you one already. I think the, 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 the tourist destination down on Nicholas Street and the, and the Greater Kings Island area, mm-hmm. it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Beautiful, both from a historical point of view, but also from a physical, um, natural point of view. The second one I said to you was, I'd love to start seeing us plan towards really good public transport. I'd love to see the first shuttle train. And do you know where I'd love to see it? I'd love to see it come in from Mungret, Doerdoyle, the Crescent, and bring it into the city. Such a big population out there and shuttle people in nice and easy. I, I, what else would I like to see, Nigel? Can I throw one at you and say, am I right? And you could tell me, densification of the city centre. Well, I would say more life, right, in the city. I, sorry, I know uh, well, the third one was in my head was I'd love to see the university actually come in properly. Do you think it will? I, yeah, I, I, well, I, I, I don't know if it'll be done in the eight years, but it'll have to. I think this, the university and TUS and, you know, well, Mary I, I suppose, is in the city. Love to see a bigger, stronger student presence because students bring life. And that's what's missing is that young life in the city. We see it sometimes at like two in the morning when they're leaving nightclubs and bars and going back to their digs or wherever they're staying. Imagine a real city centre campus for, for UL in the city on Sarsfield Street. And even when you think about the George's Key there that, 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 um, that Toos have, and, you know, you think about Barrington's is about to move out. Now I don't know what the Bond's plans for Barrington's are, but imagine that whole square became a, a Toos centre. Yeah, amazing. That's and if most. anyone has been to New York and has seen how NYU operates with its different buildings positioned and suddenly the little central parks that are located around those areas, the small little pockets, they become life. They become the place where the, t- yeah. the books are out and on sunny days. And um, Look, we've it's, it's been a, an overly long podcast, but I, I think I get a sense in my waters that it's been one that's been will of interest to people and I just want to thank you so much for coming in and taking time out. I know Liverpool are playing this evening and you need to get back and watch. But um, James Ring, thank you very... Dr. James Ring, thank you so much for joining me on the Posterity Podcast and the best of luck with Ingenium and everything you're doing. You're super. Thanks. You've been listening to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. Produced by the Limerick Post in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Theme tune composed by David Blake and performed by the Brad Pitt Light Orchestra. If you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests, you can contact me directly on Twitter at Limerick City Biz or you can contact the Limerick Post at Limerick Post.